Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as more and more streaming services come into Canada, the playing field starts to be tilted in their favor, and they're not limited like TV, radio, and film. So what are we going to do about it? We'll talk about that. The Ontario Liberals will be choosing a new leader pretty soon. One of the leadership candidates is in Hamilton today, and we spoke with him to find out exactly what they would be doing different to try to regain power. And the Transportation Task Force, we've heard so much about in the last little while, has begun looking at options available for Hamilton. We sit down with the chair of that task force to find out more. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, the uh, minister charged with modernizing the broadcast and telecommunications business, uh, that would, of course, be Stephen Jabot, uh, the heritage minister, uh, made news for, well, a rather clumsy interview he did with Evan Solomon uh, trying to explain some of the recommendations from a, an expert panel that uh, the government had struck to try to streamline and, I guess, modernize uh, telecommunications uh, in this country. Uh, a lot of feedback now about some of these 97 recommendations, and uh, it's uh, something that I think we all have to pay attention to because it impacts all of us, whether it's uh, traditional broadcasting or it's streaming services, et cetera, et cetera. There is an uneven playing field. I think everybody can uh, agree to that. But how do, we solve, how do we do something about this? Well, maybe these recommendations are to the point, maybe not. Troy Reeve is the Executive Vice President with Broadcast Networks for our course, Global News, of course, our parent company, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to give us his perspective. Troy, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us today. Uh, thank you, Bill. It's so great to be on the show. You know, through all of this process, when everybody was decrying the whole notion of government regulating or licensing media, um, you know, I, I was reminded that, you know, commercial radio has now been licensed for all and regulated for almost a hundred years and nobody would ever dare come into the Bill Kelly show and try to tell Bill what to say on the air. So um, I lock the so door. We still strike a blow for freedom of speech every day. I lock the studio door just in case, but no, they, and you guys have never <laughs> done. No, it's never. Listen, I've been in this business uh, for 48 years. And nobody has ever told me what to do and not to do. I mean, uh, there's still an awful lot of leeway here. I, I know that some people characterize some of these uh, recommendations, Troy, as Big Brother coming down on, on broadcasting. I, I don't see it that way. Well, look, I think the you know 97 recommendations, it's a 300-page report. Uh, it certainly does call for a massive increase in the bureaucracy and the level of regulation on online media. And... and and I understand why Canadians would be concerned about that. Look, we as a Canadian broadcaster feel we are overregulated right now, especially vis-a-vis -vis these, com uh, you know, internet competitors, Netflix, Disney Plus, Spotify. They come through the internet into the Canadian territory and they have zero obligations, zero regulations put on them. They create their programming solely designed on the taste of the consumer, which obviously consumers like but which puts Canadian companies at a significant disadvantage because we are told by the government not only how much we have to spend on Canadian content, we're told what genres of content we have to spend it on. Sometimes we're even told what producers we have to spend it with. Um, so there's obviously a big variance between the kinds of burdens that we face and what the foreign guys face, and that's you know really hurting the competitiveness of the Canadian industry. And one of the other elements to this too, and you and I have talked about this in the past, is is licensed broadcasters such as as we do here at CHML with Global, uh, are are by definition supposed to contribute back into Canadian culture and promote promote Canadian culture, uh, and we do that financially and otherwise, of course, with content in in our presentations. The streaming services don't do anything. I mean, the diddly squat, they don't pay into anything. They, 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 it seems to be a free ride. And I guess the question a lot of us have, how do you level that playing field? 
Yeah, that is the big question that the panel's trying to answer. And you're right, Bill, that, you know, you look at a service like Netflix, which talks about, you know, it does, you know, millions and millions of dollars of production in Canada, but that production is of American shows. Um, so they're coming in, they're taking tax credits. All of the intellectual property goes back to Hollywood and Silicon Valley. Uh, and essentially, we're helping to subsidize, um, you know, an industry that reaps the benefits outside of our borders. And there's a big difference between doing production in Canada, which admittedly creates quite a lot of jobs, and doing Canadian production, which is distinctly Canadian stories that are about our local communities and about our local culture. And and that's the difference. The one you can make a lot of money on because you're doing it using tax Canadian tax credits to serve a global market. The other, you're serving a pretty small market, just the 25 million English-speaking Canadians. And, and that's really, really tough to make money on, which is why the government has forced people to do it in the past. We're really proud to do Canadian content, but what we would like is for the, the government to be less prescriptive in how it, you know, the kinds of content it forces us to do so that we can have a better chance to compete with these foreign players and, and to level that playing field. Troy, let's talk a little bit about the bottom line here, and, and let's get down to money. Uh, because of the, the licensing and because of the, uh, the restrictions and the, and the parameters that are set here by the CRTC, the Canadian Radio Television Commission, uh, we need revenue, obviously, to generate, uh, to, to stay on the air, which, whatever enterprise that is, radio, television, even newspapers, I think we can throw into this. I think it's common knowledge that revenues are down right across the board. Uh, with newspapers, some newspapers are closing, some are downsizing. Uh, radio stations, television stations all having this problem. These streaming services are taking an awful lot of that revenue, and and it's it, they're taking, but they're not giving. That and you're absolutely right. And uh, look, the the uh, it wasn't that long ago that uh, back in the '90s, Global was the biggest TV network in the country. Then at some time, CTV became the biggest TV network in the country, which they had been before Global. Nowadays, Netflix is by far the biggest TV network in Canada. And uh, as you say, they take a lot of money out, but they're not mandated to put anything back in. And their competitive position gets bigger and bigger thanks to the fact that Canadian companies don't have the capacity to push back against them. Now, I want to be really clear. As a company, Chorus is not looking for any handouts. We have never been one to want, uh, you know, government support. We're an entrepreneurial company that believes we can compete with the best of the world, but we can't do it with one hand tied behind our back. And the level of regulation that we face versus foreign entrants who have no regulation on them at all is this big delta. And that is what the, that's what this Yale panel report tried to, to address. The way they've suggested addressing it is putting all of those same regulations that we face onto the internet streamers. And of course, that's causing a lot of controversy. We would simply point out that there is another way you could address this too, which is by reducing some of the regulations that we face. Have any chance at all for input into this whole thing? I mean, there's going to be a discussion and a debate on this. Uh, the minister says he's going to try to get legislation in place by uh, June, which is not a whole lot of time, given the fact that there seems to be an awful lot of discussion going on about these 97 recommendations. Is, is, is public input going to be part of that process? Well, the one thing I will give the minister credit for is he, he acknowledges this is a really urgent problem. The Canadian industry, Canadian culture, Canadian jobs are being subsumed to, uh, to foreign entrants, and it needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed urgently. Now, how that gets addressed through either more regulation or less, I guess, is an open question. I think there, we're already seeing a lot of feedback, and there certainly was a public input process into this panel report's recommendations. Um, 
And then once legislation comes forward, which we're told will be in June, uh, clearly there will be committee hearings and a lot of debate on it. That debate rightly will focus on whether this problem should be solved through more regulation or whether it could be solved through less regulation. All our, all we're saying is it has to be solved. You have to level the playing field because the status quo is not acceptable. Well, it's going to be a fascinating debate once that does happen. We're right up against the clock here right now because we do have to do what we can about revenue generation here. Uh, Troy, let's continue this conversation once we get some more meat on the bones and the, and the, uh, the federal government starts to respond. Thanks so much for this today. Always fun being on with you, Bill. Take care. Troy Reeve, of course, uh, from uh, Chorus Global News, the Executive Vice President of Broadcast Networks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, snow overnight has uh, messed up a lot of people's travel plans today, and there'll probably laugh a lot of people right across southern Ontario that are not where they need to be on time today. Uh, including our next guest, uh, Stephen Del Duca, of course, is a former uh, cabinet minister in the uh, Kathleen Wynne government. And uh, now seeking the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party. And uh, because of the traffic circumstance, he joins us by phone here on the Bill Keller Show. Stephen, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us again today. My pleasure to be on. Sorry that I'm not there in person. Well, the next, we'll schedule it in June where there'll be no snow next time. Maybe we can work <laughs> something there. It happens. It's, it's, it's Canada. It's Ontario, right? This is, the, this is what we all put up with here. Uh, let's uh, let's exactly. talk. A li- let's talk a little bit about how the campaign is going so far. I mean, this is a party that was decimated in the last provincial election, lost party status, and of course, uh, Kathleen Wynne has stepped down as leader of the party. Uh, there's a, a lot of people that I would just ask you right off the top, Steve. Why do you want the job? Well, look, I think that where we are in Ontario today, with the decisions that are being made at Queens Park by Doug Ford and his friends, taking the province really badly off track. I think we can do better. I think we deserve better. And so I decided months ago to throw my hat into the ring because I want to make sure that my young daughters grow up in a province that gives them as much opportunity as I had growing up. And I don't think that's the case right now. So been working really hard for over a year now. Campaign is into the final few stages now and uh, feeling good about the progress that we've made. But we have a lot of work ahead of us as a party in general to get ready for an election in 2022. Well, we can beat Doug Ford and get Ontario back on track. What are you hearing as you as you go from community to community? Well, definitely people are unhappy with the decisions that are being made. And, you know, for example, in public education, cuts to autism services, um, environmental protections, a lot of nervousness about all of that. And so people do want to see a clear and, and viable and pragmatic alternative to, uh, to what's happening at Queen's Park right now. But, uh, you know, for liberals provincially, we have a ton of work to do in terms of regaining the trust of the people of the province. And I think that's the most important job for the next leader of the party, taking the time to listen, taking the time to uh, to um, <clears throat> not dictate, not not sort of lecture at people, but actually listen to them and their everyday concerns, and and making sure that that confidence, that trust, can be regained. Because I think that's one of the reasons that we lost as badly as we did. People just felt that we weren't on their side anymore, and so I think that's going to take time. That's going to take relentless uh, effort. And uh, I'm up for the challenge, but it's not going to be it's not going to be quick. It's not going to be easy. Talking to a pundit, a friend of mine who actually is affiliated with another political party, but he, we talked about the leadership for the Liberals here, and we've talked with Mr. Koto as well, and, and some of the other folks that are running. Uh, and they said, "Look at what's the guarantee that you know if Stephen Del Duca, for instance, becomes the leader and the next premier of this province, that we're not just going to get uh, you know." part two of, of the wind government, which everybody seemed to be very upset with, and, and I guess expressed that, that, that frustration at the, at the voting booth that a year and a half ago. 
So, I mean, look, I, for sure people were frustrated. There's no doubt about that. They felt, obviously, that we, as I said a second ago, that we were no longer on their side, that we were out of touch. I learned a long time ago from my uh, from my grandfather, in fact, that experience in life is the best teacher. And so I think having a chance to serve inside the cabinet room, having a chance to serve at Queen's Park for just about six years, seeing the good that we were able to deliver and the progress that we did make collectively as a province, but also seeing how decisions got made that turned people turned people off, turned them away from us. I think that, that gives me a strong sense and a strong um, opportunity to hit the ground running and make sure that we do regain that confidence of the voter, that we do regain the trust. But again, I just want to stress, it cannot be taken for granted. As unpopular as Doug Ford might seem today, and that's unpopularity that is well-deserved and has been well-earned by Doug Ford and his friends, we can't just assume as liberals this will fall back into our laps. We are not entitled to govern. Uh, we will literally have to work every single moment between the convention in March and Election Day, which will be in June of 2022, to make sure that we've regained that trust. Part of it will be, what kind of candidates do we bring forward? Part of it will be, what kind of policies are we putting in the window so people can see again that we are on their side, on the economy, on a climate, uh, a climate crisis plan, on investments in transportation and transit, on healthcare, on education, on all of that and more, people will have to see where we want to lead the province. And we have to make sure that those policies, those ideas are compelling to voters. And if we do that and we communicate effectively, I'm convinced that we can do some really incredible things together and deliver more progress. With uh, Stephen Del Duca, a liberal leadership candidate, of course, uh, as uh, they head towards the, uh, well, selecting a new leader, as Stephen just mentioned, in June of this year. Uh, given that scenario, though, uh, and I know the last two public opinion polls actually have the Liberal Party ahead of Doug Ford's conservatives in public opinion polls, even though, you know, the, the party is, is well, it's a lot smaller than it was when you were sitting in Queen's Park. Let's put it that way. And I think, Stephen, I think you both, and I, both you and I know, that those numbers are really a reflection on the, of, of the, the disfavor that the Ford government's in. It's not so much that, uh, hey, we want to bring back the Liberals. They just don't like what uh, Mr. Ford seems to be doing. Uh, but you can't build on that. You know it's not going to be like that, uh, you know, come election time a year and a half from now. How do you do that? I mean, you, you want to get a, a slate of candidates. That, that's everybody's stated goal, to get people that are going to reflect those policies. But do you reinvent this party? Do you reinvent the, the platform that you're going in? Do you reinstitute some of the other policies uh, that, you, that you did when you were in cabinet and in government? Where, where do you go on here? Where do you begin? Well, I think the most, you know, I think on, on this front, the most important thing to remember is that we have or we will have, coming out of the convention in March, we'll have 26 months. <clears throat> so it's not four years till the next election, it's 26 months. And so as a party, we have to be able to hit the ground running right out of the gate. We have to be able to do all of the work that's required simultaneously. So as a party, you know, we're still millions of dollars in debt. <clears throat> we're going to have to raise a lot of money. We're going to have to find, because the caucus is so small today, we're going to have to find over 100 candidates that are not currently incumbents. And we're going to have to do the platform development in a way <clears throat> that takes into account every region in the province. And that can only be done by listening and, and not starting the process off with a presumption that we somehow know better for Ontarians uh, about their lives uh, than, than, uh, than they know themselves. And that's an exercise that will take time. But, you know, if we don't hit the ground running on all fronts coming right out of the convention, I think we're going to be in a really tough spot come uh, come that next election campaign. So, you know, I'm convinced that, look, we've got a great slate of candidates running for leader. 
There are six of us all together. Everyone's been working relentlessly hard for the last number of months. In my case, it's now been over a year of campaigning. Regardless of who wins the leadership, it's going to be, you know, we're going to be able to, we're going to be able to move forward very, very well. But I am convinced that, you know, my, my, my skills, my experience, my work ethic, all of that combined with the fact that we do have a resilient brand in this party, uh, I believe that we will be well positioned for, for success. But I want to stress, we can't take it for granted. We can't presume it's going to fall into our lap. And that's really, really important to say, because I think one of the places where we almost broke face with the people of Ontario and lost their trust was a sense that somehow, somehow after 15 years in power, we felt like we were entitled to govern. We have to move away from that. But we cannot take voters for granted. We have to earn their respect, earn their trust every step of the way. Don't know if you've heard, but there seems to be a bit of a problem right now with teachers' unions and the uh, the current Ontario government. <laughs> I, I, I think I think yeah. it's made the it's made the news in Toronto too. I think. Uh, <laughs> what would Premier Del Duca do about this? I mean, the, when the Liberals were in power, both Dalton McGuinty and Kathleen Wynne governments, there seemed to be a, a fair bit of peace. I mean, there were still contract negotiations and a back and forth on that. But we, we've I don't think in recent history, Stephen, really seen this confrontational attitude between not just one union, but all of the teachers' unions, elementary, uh, secondary school, French language, Catholic, all, public. It's they're, they're all in the same boat right now, and uh, they're pointing the finger at the government. Uh, what, what do you do to try to alleviate the pressure, first of all, and what do you do to try to put an education system together that's going to be the best for our students? I mean, that should be the stated goal, not to you know, can we do it the cheapest way. We need to do it the best way. Yeah, you're 100% right about that. I mean, I think right from the very beginning before contract negotiations such that they've been so far even began i think that doug ford set the table for the confrontation like he was looking for the fight instead of looking for that outcome that you were talking about a second ago which which was how do we produce the best learning environment for for all of our students for our kids in this province i mean they passed legislation before which i think was provocative you know uh, you know, regarding what compensation levels could possibly be. Uh, then they said they were going to be cutting uh, teachers. Then they said they were going to be making um, online courses mandatory. Then they said that, you know, we, we saw independent um, analysis from the financial accountability officers saying over five years, roughly 10,000 teachers could lose their jobs. Class sizes were going to grow. We know from past experience when class sizes grow, graduation rates drop, students don't perform as well. I mean, it literally, they could not possibly, uh, Doug Ford, this is, could not possibly have done a worse job handling what is one of the most important responsibilities of a premier than he's done in this case. And it shows parents, and my daughters are 12 and 8, parents are upset about this. Uh, they, they might not, parents, you know, everyone's busy in their day-to-day lives, and it's understandable that not everyone pays attention to politics the way some of us inside the business do. I get that. But parents know in their heart of hearts that if they want the best possible learning environment for their children, class sizes have to remain relatively small. Some students can handle uh, online courses. Some students can't. Making four of those courses mandatory in high school was a mistake right from the very beginning. And looking for a fight instead of looking for an outcome that's actually, uh, that's determined to deliver progress, it's just a horrible, horrible mistake. So, there will be a requirement after the next election to repair the relationship with professional educators and support staff. There will be an absolute requirement to try and make up all of the damage that's being done in public education. And by the way, 
public education at all levels, Doug Ford also made college and university far less affordable and far less accessible for thousands of students across this province. That was one of his first and most egregious uh, acts as premier. So right across the board, we need to reinvest in public education at all levels. We need to recognize its economic policy, and it's also the great leveler. It's also the great equalizer here in our province. And I think, I think it's about values. I think it's about understanding what one's priorities need to be. And public education is certainly something that I value, and it's something that Ontario liberals value. And it's not a partisan thing. I believe Ontarians value it. And Doug Ford is 100% wrong on all of this. Stephen, as a former transportation minister in a previous government, uh, I want to talk to you about what's going on in Hamilton here. Obviously, we're in a state of quandary right now. We don't know what's happening with our, our, our transit plan. The LRT has been canceled by this government. Uh, don't know if we want it back. I mean, there's, there's a lot of debate going on right now, uh, not just in this community, but in other communities as well. Uh, at the same time, any government, whether it's going to be a, a Stephen Del Duca government or any other government like this, has got to have to be cognizant of the fact that uh, the money doesn't grow on trees. So you've got to develop an yeah. efficient system, but at the same time, you've got to keep an eye on, on the bank balances. How do you develop a policy like that? Do you, uh, is LRT still the way to go? Is, is that uh, the mantra for, for the future, for, not just for Hamilton, but for other major cities in this province? I mean, you're talking to the guy that was the transportation minister who announced the LRT in the first case. Uh, I know that it's really difficult in many communities. We experienced a similar similar challenge, I guess, if I can put it that way, in Brampton, uh, also with an LRT that we had announced. Um, It's tough in communities that, on the one hand, are are confronting uh, horrible transit and, sorry, horrible transportation gridlock, if I can put that in, right across the GTHA. Uh, we know that we have a congestion challenge that's just off the charts. And also, so it's hard on the one hand because people know something needs to be done. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we don't have an operate. Well, we do now in Ottawa, but in the GTHA, we do not yet have an operating LRT. So it's, it's hard for a lot of uh, commuters to see exactly what this technology, technology uh, how it operates, what's it, what it looks like, how effective it is. Even we know, even though we know in other parts of the world, it works very, very well. I believe Generally speaking, in LRTs, I also believe in working closely with communities. I don't think we can dictate from on high at Queen's Park what the solution needs to be in every single community. I am, I stand by the fact that we made the announcement on the LRT. I feel, I felt, and I feel it was the right way to go. I don't, I don't think that it was a magic bullet solution that was going to solve the transit challenge right across all of Hamilton. And I, you know, my feeling at the time was it's an important start start, along with an important uh, investment to expand GO service uh, out towards Stony Creek with a new GO station. All of that was part of an over an overall plan. Where we're going to be in a couple of years, or two and a half years, remains to be seen. I know that the Ford government's appointed a transit task force. I know uh, that I, I assume or I presume they're going to bring forward recommendations. I think for now, what I can say to the people of Hamilton is, if I'm elected uh, leader and ultimately premier, you will have a partner at Queen's Park who will want to make dramatic investments in transit in Hamilton and right across the GTHA. I will want to do it in partnership and collaboration with municipal leaders. Uh, I will want to make sure we're all on the same page. But most importantly, I just want to get shovels in the ground and get projects built. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Uh, we'll have to uh, hook up again a little bit later on. We've got a long way to go between now and June, Stephen. Thank you so much for the time today. 
Thanks so much, Bill. You take care. Stephen Del Duca, of course, a candidate for the Liberal leadership. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. John Paul Danko, along with, uh, well, just about everybody else on council, have expressed some uh, concerns about uh, the methodology used in, uh, first of all, striking the uh, Transportation Task Force that was put together by uh, Transportation Minister Catherine Mulroney and uh, concerned about uh, what kind of recommendations may be coming forth. Well, to that end, we are pleased to welcome uh, Tony Valeri, who is the chair of the uh, Transportation Task Force, looking into the transportation options that are available for Hamilton. Uh, between your regular day job at ArcelorMittal and, and this work here, uh, thanks for making the time of getting in here, Tony. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me on. I, I, I know that there's a perception in the community, and especially on City Council, I think, that there's a cone of silence going over this whole thing. Uh, maybe you could explain uh, the what communication policies, the, the platform, and in some people's minds, the lack of communication that's going on. It's, well, some people are going so far as to say lack of transparency, but, <clears throat> excuse me, about the work that you're doing. Well, I think, Bill, I'll, I'll, I'll start with... Uh, uh, essentially what we were what we were asked to do so um, there are five folks that are sitting on this task force are volunteers mm-hmm. from from the city of Hamilton the, these are not appointees people didn't apply for these jobs uh, folks got a call and said uh, you know I'd like to uh, receive uh, the ministry would like to receive a, a preliminary list of uh, recommendations of, of uh, transit and transportation projects uh, for consideration, would you uh, consider participating on this, right? So so you have a group of volunteers, and we've been asked essentially to provide uh, that preliminary list. And the direction that we've been provided through the terms of reference is to ensure that the projects are of substantial benefit to uh, the residents or the economy of Hamilton and, and reflect the interests and, and the needs of the residents and businesses, right? So, so how do you do that, right? So the work of the task force to date has really been about um, focusing on an assessment uh, mechanism, an assessment process. So, so how do you reflect uh, 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 the needs uh, of residents or the substantial benefit to residents? So you look at things like, you know, the 10-year uh, transit master plan. You look at the council priorities that that have been brought forward for this council. All, all uh, of which you were in possession of. All of which, you know, is all public information, all yeah. of which we we're in pos- possession of. So so it's not that the, the task force is not there uh, sort of working in... Uh, in some sort of, you know, the way it's been characterized, I think, is 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 not really fair in in my mind. The information that the task force is looking for, is pu- is looking at, I should say, is public information that exists, uh, public information that primarily is coming from uh, the council documents, and 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 the most senior employee of the city of Hamilton is sitting on mm-hmm. the task force, so. Council priorities or council views are coming to the table through the most senior employee that council has, and the Ministry of Transportation is providing their expertise. We also have um, a professor from McMaster, uh, uh, you know, the the head of the the McMaster Institute of Transportation and and Logistics, and so the focus for us as a task force is evidence based uh, uh, a review of existing. Uh, transportation planning documents, uh, you know, both existing today and projecting forward that we would look at it, identify those gaps, lean on the experts, and then ultimately develop a preliminary list for consideration uh, by the minister. Are you working backwards here? I mean, do you start with the bottom line? There's a billion dollars available here, and okay, this project here, X number of dollars, X number of dollars, and you just go down the list until you reach that billion dollar mark? 
um, again, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to prejudge the, yeah. the process of, 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 of the assessment because we're, we're still working through, uh, working through that approach. But there um, is a possibility there's more than one or two projects that may actually come out of this. Yeah, I, 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 I would think, you know, again, I'm not going to prejudge, but there could be uh, more, yeah. more than one or two projects that come from it. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a matter of, you know, is this a budgeting exercise or, or are we actually going to identify uh, based on the evidence and based on the public documents that uh, that the experts are providing, uh, are we going to look at this and say, so what are the gaps for Hamilton? You know, if you think of, say, some of the assessment criteria, if you think of interconnectivity and connectivity, right? Uh, um, if you think of, of you know, um, trans- from a transit perspective, are we doing things like connecting aspects of, you know, all, as- all points in the community, uh, uh, you know, if you look at these types of projects and, and you look at the evidence in the gaps, if the evidence is there that suggests these types of projects uh, are ones that should be funded or should be considered, then they go on the list, right? Ultimately, the minister, these are recommendations to the minister. The minister will then decide. Sure. Uh, it's quite an extensive wish list. I know you've got the 10-year plan. I'm sure you've got all the other transit documents, rapid ready, and things of those nature. Mm-hmm. That's a 700-page read. That'll be a lot of fun for you. Uh, but there's some extraneous programs too that that probably don't fall under the uh, the heading of of public transit. Uh, there's a discussion, as I'm sure you know, at council yesterday about uh, the expansion of the 403, adding another lane. Uh, Councillor Ferguson about the uh, the you know the on ramp onto the 403 westbound from Ancaster and things of those natures. Uh, and some are concerned about the, the some of this money may be channeled into the all day go service that the city's been promised here for about the last 15 years. Are, are those things on the table, or are you simply looking at things within, frankly, within the city limits? Well, I, I, I think we'd have to go back. You go back to the uh, the terms of reference and they talk about substantial benefit to the residents or the economy of Hamilton, right? I mean, those are sort of the guide. That's those are part of the guiding the, the guiding principles of the, of how the the committee is going to operate, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I've heard that, that you know, um, you know, as, as you hear some comments where people, you know, perhaps suggest that. You know, don't use the money for things that you know uh, province was going to pay for already. Yeah, you're you're going to get a letter about that. <laughs> so, so you know, I, I think certainly the 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 task force is is very cognizant of the fact that whatever recommendations that we would bring forward, first and foremost, would have to be of that substantial benefit to the to the Hamilton residents, right? And we're also cognizant that. That this this billion dollars that's been allocated to transportation and transit to the city of Hamilton is used in the high you know it, it has the highest and best application to ultimately uh, meet the needs and fill the gaps that exist uh, in Hamilton today. And then, you know, this idea of future ready, also ensuring that the investments of today are positioning the transportation and transit investments to be future ready as technology improves, as things change, that you're able to adapt and continue to improve the transit system. As a former elected official, do you understand the angst that some of the city councillors are expressing right now that they've, in their minds anyway, been excluded from this process, that this is really, this is this is their wheelhouse and, and this committee, not because of your fault, this was, the whole thing was not your idea, but that you've kind of taken the reins away from these guys? Well, I, I, I don't entirely agree that that council has been excluded because I, I believe that through their most senior employee, uh, the CAO, uh, that council's 
priorities and council's views are coming to uh, the task force and, and I think will continue to come through the task force. Um, so, I, you know, we find ourselves here, I guess from a task force perspective, we find ourselves here and we've been asked to uh, contribute to what we hope will be uh, an improvement and and a benefit to that's certainly our objective as task force members to be a, to contribute to that improvement and benefit of transportation and transit uh, to the to the city of Hamilton. I think you know through the presentations uh, or through uh, the interface with the uh, senior folks at the city of Hamilton and the most senior employee, I certainly feel that council uh, will be reflected in in the discussion and the dialogue. Well, I, listen, and, and we've talked about this on the program too, Tony. I mean. Uh, they like to point to the minister's trip to Hamilton here where they announced they were going to withdraw support for the LRT and say, well, that's why we're in this position. The council's culpable here, too. I mean, they dragged their heels on, on this project for years uh, and, you know, paralysis by analysis. And I think that is, is in part what led to the decision. So, uh, you know, if you're looking to point fingers, and some, some people on council are, sometimes you need to look in the mirror before you start looking elsewhere. But that uh, that's not you. This is you. You're, you know, trying to fix a situation like this. Uh you're supposed to have something, I guess, ready for the minister by February 28th. Is that enough time? Well, I think that uh, the progress that we've made so far in terms of, of uh, establishing the assessment criteria, we're hearing from from experts and various. We're hearing from you know MTO. We hear from Metrolinx. We hear from you know uh, organizations that have developed and have access and are presenting. And we're here from the city of Hamilton uh, officials. So. Uh, we have access to the kind of evidence that I think that we need. Um, certainly, it's you know I I, I think there that in terms of time, it, it's always you know always a challenge in mm-hmm. terms of meeting. Uh, but but I I have confidence that given the progress that we've made today, that that we will work towards that. Uh, you know, and, and I think that if. At the end of the day, uh, you know, we require uh, a bit more time uh, to conclude. Then we would make that request at, at that at that point. But I don't believe at this point we we're there. Uh, we're working under the um, under the premise of the terms of reference, which require us to provide a uh, preliminary list to uh, the minister by the end of February. Did Did you have that discussion with Minister Mulroney about this? I mean, I, I was so, somewhat surprised when they announced this is when we want to have these recommendations. I mean, it's not as if the sand's running out of the hourglass. Here. I, I can understand they want to get this thing resolved, but by the same token, if this takes five weeks instead of four weeks, is, is that going to set somebody back somewhere? Well, I, I mean, again, I mean, I, I think I think four weeks, five weeks. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, where I, I don't really want to focus on that. I think the point is, and and I think the message is that the task force has been asked to do this work uh, in in a period of time. Uh, that also ensures that the billion dollars that have been allocated to Hamilton actually starts working for Hamilton, right, as quickly as possible. So at the end of it, you know, if we feel that there's a major gap uh, or we require, you know, a day or two or a week, we'll, we'll cross that bridge, you know, if when we reach that point. But I think the point is that uh, with all the deliberation that's gone on with respect to transit and transportation, there are, you know, decades of work that has been that's been completed and dialogue that's been going on. We're at a point in time now where I feel uh, you know, the ministry has certainly said, we have a billion dollars allocated. We'd like to get the billion dollars operating and working for the city of Hamilton as quickly as we can uh, through a competent process that will provide, based on evidence, right, recommendations or a suggestion through a preliminary list of projects. What about uh, the confidentiality in, in which you're working right now? These are, these are closed-door sessions. 
the, the analogy that we were using on the show the other day is, I mean, you're a, 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 an agency, it's a, a force that's been set up here by the province. You're working at the behest of the province to give information to the province. Not unlike what the transition board back in 2000 did when they announced that they were going to impose the, 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 the government of the day here. But those were open meetings. Uh, when Marvin Ryder was the chair and the members of that committee met at open session at various places around town, you, you were invited not necessarily to make delegations, but you could see what's going on. Uh, why, why the closed-door sessions? I mean, it's not as if there are contract negotiations or anything going on. The usual reasons why uh, there would be some sort of confidentiality to go in camera. Uh, w- are you amenable to the idea of, of public input here and public discussions about this? Well, again, I don't think th- I don't think the role of the task force is to be gathering uh, the information or or the evidence that's essentially been deliberated and debated for a number of years already with respect to these projects. Uh, the, the task force, through its terms of reference, is meant to put a lens to the evidence that both the city of Hamilton, through their work and their study and their transit plans. Uh, the provincial government, both from a local Hamilton and a regional and a broad, you know, more broadly province of Ontario transportation master plan, Metrolinx with respect to what it's doing on its transportation plan. So it's not that the the task force is 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 being asked to conduct public hearings for an extended period of time, given given the amount of time that that that's been provided to look at the evidence and then provide a lens. Uh, that would, you know, again, going back to the to substantially benefit the residents of Hamilton, that, you know, in that period of time, we couldn't possibly hear from everyone equally. Our, our role is less about gathering the information and more about analyzing through a lens of evidence and criteria that we're establishing the existing evidence that exists through experts and through other agencies that already exist. The problem that I had with this, and I understand the uh, the, the, the desire to, to be transparent, but uh, you bring 10 people in, Tony, you're going to get 10 different opinions on what you should do. Um, you know, and you need to focus, I guess, at this stage. I, I'm getting the sense that, that your role, meaning the task force role here, uh, is not to start looking for new opinions. It's to evaluate what you've got. In other words, if we go that process, you're going back to square one. Exactly. Uh, so, and and I, I don't think that's what the government wants here. They want to say, let's carry on from here. I, exactly. I think that's a great way uh, to characterize it, right? It's not going back to square one. It's, it's actually using the base of existing knowledge uh, coming from experts, uh, debates and deliberations that have happened in public well, if, already. For instance, I mean, right? I, I've heard some people say, well, this is a great chance. Now we just, you know what, we'll put the LRT in the A-line. That's what it should have been in the first place. Well, you've got all that information. That's been studied and studied and studied and evaluated. Uh, if you want to look into it, you've got that document someplace. So why, why you know, go over those steps again? It's it's not an exercise in rehashing uh, in information that's already been made public and the cases have been made and the evidence has been pre- presented. It's about now having that evidence uh, as a as a body of information that we as a task force, uh, you know, a group of volunteers asked by the minister to provide this preliminary list to look at that body of information and actually uh, uh, discern from that. Uh, through a lens of criteria that we're establishing to try and fill the gaps that we see uh, in the Hamilton uh, transit and transportation uh, infrastructure. When you're done your work, uh, February 29th rolls around and, and here's what you've done and you've come up with. Uh, you report to the minister, obviously. 
Will that be public information at that stage, or is that up to the minister to decide? Ultimately, it'll be up to the minister. This is this, these are recommendations that go to the minister, uh, and and then the minister would certainly you know take the recommendations and and then and then deliberate on that. But I really can't speak to that point. Uh, our work will be completed. Uh, once we provide those recommendations to the minister. And so our focus as a task force is to do the work that we've been asked to do in in a manner that I think will be uh, uh, defensible, credible, uh, a process that 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 I think uh, you know people will look at it and 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 I, I think will say that it would is well thought out and 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 uh, and credible as I said and then ultimately those recommendations go to the minister and at that point it'll be in the hands of the minister. But it's not binding. These are recommendations to the yeah. minister, right? So so again, right? This is not a this is not a. Uh, a court that pronounces on a, a decision. It's right? not going to be. This is what we want. No. This. This is. This is. This is about providing recommendations to the minister through a lens of a criteria that we will have established, adhering to the terms of reference that we've been provided, and frankly, incorporating very specifically. Uh, the ten-year transit master plan that the city of Hamilton has, and then also the council priorities that have been articulated by council. Tony, when if we ever do put eyes on on the report, I know the minister certainly will, but um, there will be some discussion, I'm sure. Uh, as you prepare the report, and and you do start to prioritize and do evaluations, uh, do you feel it's part of your responsibility as well to to rationalize some of those choices and some of those decisions? I think with with the recommendations that we will provide, again, you know, I'd be cautious not to prejudge what ultimately sure. the task force members uh, decide on. But I do believe as we put forward these recommendations uh, for consideration that there would be some narrative around uh, the rationale uh, for them being on the list. Right? Again, tying back to council priorities, tying back to transportation plans, tying back to both, you know, in this intra-city and, and, and inter-city uh, transit connections uh, and ensuring that uh, that it's reflective of our main goal, which is that the recommendations we put forward are of substantial benefit to the residents of Hamilton. And, and I wasn't suggesting you need to justify them, but in no. other words, here's here's what we've considered, here's our evaluation, therefore this should be number one, this should be number two, et cetera. Do you actually n- number these things well, or I, I just d- say, here's here's the basket? Yeah, so again, I, mean, I, I, I can't suggest, I'm not, I'm not going to prejudge. I don't know whether we're ultimately going to get into a ranking or whether we will ultimately provide a list uh, with with a rationale as to why it's on the list based on the process and the criteria that we have agreed to. Uh, love to get you back in here when you're all finished your work and maybe we can have a discussion about exactly how it went. And uh, again, we're going to be waiting on the minister first uh, to see just how this is going to roll out. Thanks so much for uh, for the time today and, and good luck with this. Obviously, you, you know as a, as a lifetime resident of Hamilton that uh, a lot's riding on this. Yeah, Excuse I mean, the pun. I, I, I think <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's important work. I, I'm 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 you know very I'm honored and and pleased to have the opportunity to contribute. And I think every member of that task force comes to every meeting with the uh, with the belief that they're contributing to um, a better transit and transportation plan. Uh, an investment in infrastructure for the city of Hamilton, and we're all we're all residents of the city of Hamilton, and want to see the city continue to prosper. Tony Valeri, the chair of the uh, Transportation Task Force. Again, good luck. Thanks for being here today. Thank you very much, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.